Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park you put your life and your family's sanity at total risk for nothing just to say that you can climb something that no one has climbed before Carl smiled a cool smile at Christina you're clearly not a climber but to answer your question it's not about anybody else this is a spiritual journey for yourself of course there's no point in climbing any mountain however it's about pushing yourself to the limit to understand some greater truth about your life and the fleeting nature of the human experience Welcome to The True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome to the True Fiction Project with me, Renita Hora. I have with me today Anne Bancroft. She is a polar explorer and educator and filled with a series of exciting adventures. Hi, Anne. Welcome to the show. Diving right into it, and I don't know if diving is part of your adventure series, you are one of the (laughs) first women to cross Antarctica in 2001. I mean, that in and of itself is just so intriguing. What can you tell us about that story? Well, it's sort of a contiguous story of just sort of adventuring from one end of the globe to the other and points in between. But in 1986, I went to the North Pole, crossed the ice with seven men and 49 male dogs, which I love to remind people of. And then in the 90s, I launched an all-women's expedition to the South Pole, and that sort of led me to crossing Antarctica. As a young girl at about the age of 10, I came across a book called The Endurance. It was a story about Ernest Shackleton and his desire to cross the continent of Antarctica. They would never realize that dream because they had all sorts of mishaps, which totally captivated me as a young person. It was a great, grand adventure, but it fueled my imagination to one day doing it myself. And so when I had a taste of the top of the world and then the bottom of the world, I wanted more. And I invited a Norwegian woman, Lee Varnison, to join me. And our sort of our grandiose idea was to cross the continent of Antarctica, not just the way others had thought about it, the sort of the shorter way, we went from sort of the tip of Cape Town, that part of Antarctica, skiing our sleds and heading on down to the South Pole and then on to the other end of the continent on the New Zealand-Australian side. 
a very large continent, so you sort of have to geographically place it. Of course, everything is north when you're on that bottom continent of the world. Now, I guess we should step back a bit. You had this dream as a young child to go to the top of the world and then the bottom of the world or some of that. How did all of this come about? I have to credit most of my adventures from being sparked by a literature that has a wonderful way of transporting us all over the place, internally and externally. And so it was really books that sparked this imagination of mine to the polar ice caps. And just that I think in some ways your personality plays a role in this. I have a lot of outdoor friends and they're very accomplished in kayaking and climbing, et cetera. But most of them, I would say 99% of them don't have any aspirations to do these long sort of slogging journeys at the ends of the earth in cold environments. I know that my personality plays a role in this as well as just right out of the blocks, just according to my mother, always seeking out adventure, particularly adventures in the out of doors and ones that are physical. So you sort of put that all into a stew and you've got kind of the right mix to think about going to these places. So I love everything you're saying, by the way, Anne. This show is called The True Fiction Project and we are about books and stories. If not books, then definitely stories and exploring the journey of those stories, how they start out as nonfiction and, you know, proceed to fiction. So I'm going to have to ask you much more about that later on with a view to sort of polar exploration. But it's also interesting that you mentioned personality and you remind me of a picture of my mother who, you know, once all her kids were grown up and out of the house and married and whatnot, she goes off to the North Pole and there's a picture of her doing snow angels. And I thought that was wonderful because it's not the kind of thing an Indian woman does <laughs> typically. <Yeah. laughs> but obviously, so she had some personality driving her to get there, but not to go explore. And when you think about people and explorations and mountaineering and safaris and into the depths of the jungles, what drives a desire to explore the poles? I think my original purpose on the North Pole was simply to follow a childhood dream. And I do enjoy greatly pushing myself physically and mentally. I like to go to places where few people exist and few people have gone before. And so the North Pole really fulfilled that when I interviewed for a place on the team. Pretty simple in terms of my objective. I was an educator. At the time, it was just sort of a year off to train and to do the expedition, and I was going to come home and teach again. Something happened along the way, and I think a lot of it had to do with being the first woman to the top of the world across the ice. It caught other people's imagination, and my world was sort of turned upside down, and I ended up not going back into the classroom formally. I just wasn't ready. My head was kind of up in the clouds, and you've got to be ready. When you're an elementary school teacher, you don't go into the classroom unless you're fully ready to meet those faces and that energy. And so I thought, well, I'm going to take another year off. And that just didn't happen. It One trip led to another. And I really found over the course of a couple years after that North Pole trip, my calling, as it were. And it was a mixing of both my passion and my purpose. 
my passion for education and these faraway places and stepping out and doing those trips and my purpose of wanting to do something bigger than myself. So it was no longer adequate for me just to follow my own personal dream and sort of kick off a checkbook, you know, of what I've achieved. I wanted something more. And I think that was the educator in me. Perhaps Mm. it was that feeling of responsibility as the first woman to do something in this realm. And so I started to mix the expeditions with education. And that to me was something that was like coming home. I've never looked back. I've been doing it since the early 90s and I'm doing it today. So every expedition that I do that is public, it's always got an educational component to it. And that has given me a sense of real purpose that is even beyond being in the classroom formally. So I feel so fortunate and so fulfilled each and every day to be able to sort of deliver on that. And I get so much from it myself. Wow. Talk about living your passion and following your dreams. And I love the fact that you are combining the expeditions with education. And I want to ask you, in your first ever expedition, being the first woman out there at the top of the world, what did that feel like? It's a wonderful way to ask it. My answer is sort of, I think, a bit disappointing. I mean, you live in an isolated world when you're so far away from humankind and you just have your team. In those days, I have to always remind people, we didn't have GPSs then. We had a sextant and the sun and the wind to navigate by. We did have a radio, but it rarely worked. So we had no means of communication per se. We were really isolated from the outside world. And so I, like my team members, were just really following something that we had a great desire to do. There wasn't a lot of thought about me being the first woman and all of that. I was just a grunt of a team member, you know, just like everybody else. And it wasn't until I came home that there was this kerfuffle about this element. And I have to tell you, I was totally unmoored by the whole thing for about two years. I didn't know how to handle it. The phone was ringing off the hook and it was just such a bewildering time for myself. And that's why I think it was so important for me when I sort of had my epiphany of merging my two loves into, as it were, a career. It wasn't really by design. It was just more, you know, sort of just like my expedition, just putting one foot in front of the other and sort of discovering what's out there. I really didn't know how to digest any of that at that time. I was 30 years old. I just thought I'd go back to the classroom and that was it. Mm. And speaking of this classroom, this outdoor classroom, as it were, what is it, and this is a wide question or wide questions perhaps, what is it that you learn when you are out there? What is it that you teach? And what can we learn? Well, I believe after so many decades of doing this, that what happens on an expedition happens in life. And the themes that are illuminated out on the ice in that stark environment are really no different than the life I lead here, tucked in a little village in Minnesota. It's about working together as human beings. It's about adjusting to 
what is out there in our environments, you know, and you can use environments in any way. It can be an economic environment. It can be the weather, but what you can control and what you can't and how you meet those challenges each and every day. It's about keeping a sense of humor to put one foot in front of the other. It's about humility. There, everything that we face in life, we're facing on an expedition. I think what the expedition provides me is sort of two or four months of that isolation where the lesson really becomes crystal clear. And, you know, you learn about yourself each and every time and you're, you don't, you're not a static human being. So each expedition Mm. requires a kind of an honesty to how you've changed and evolved. And if you're not honest, these stark environments can sort of get you, if that makes any sense. You've got to lay it, your cards out on the table. You can't fudge because Mother Nature's just Mother Nature and she's all powerful. She's both beautiful and benign and then a blink of an eye, she can be nasty and all riled up. I'm reading the journals and the books and the stories of those early explorers. And so Our job is the same, even in the passage of time, is to come home and share what we've learned, what we've seen, what we've experienced in this remarkable world and how it has changed us and affected us. And so we do that through, you know, now we do it through our books and through our PowerPoints and lectures and whatnot. And so we really become storytellers. And Mm. what I love about that is that I'm in front of so many different groups because it really doesn't matter where your sort of your jam is, your sweet spot. The stories draw people in and they do the yeoman's work really of talking about the tough stuff that happens expeditions and thus in life and in work. And it's a way that connects people in such a beautiful construct, if you will. I just love it so much because I'm introduced to so many different people in so many different walks of life, and yet we're drawn together because of these common elements to our stories. And once I give my story, it's always wonderful that I get stories back. So you ask, what do you learn? I learn so much from other people, from my students, whom I've never met Physically, they're all virtual, five million of them all around the world, but they're teaching me what it means for them to intersect with my expeditions and my stories and how that plays out in their little world. That's wonderful to hear. So inspiring. And I love how you describe your themes on ice as a metaphor for dealing with life back in a village in Minnesota or wherever, economically, physically. So getting to the heart of the storytelling, which is what I was referring to earlier, and really is the heart of what we explore as explorers of true fiction in the True Fiction Project, I would love to hear a story or two from you that puts into context some of your adventures, the humor, the humility, your personal, whatever you experienced. Anything you can share? There's so many, it's always hard to pick. So I'm crossing with one other woman. It's a 100-day expedition. So it's very slow to get across this enormous continent the size of the United States and Mexico combined. Big piece of real estate. We're on skis. And occasionally we try and lift these sails and capture that wonderful 
strength of the Antarctic winds and boost our mileage a little bit so that we can get across before the season comes to a close. The summer season on Antarctica is November through February. After that, it gets dark and cold, and any people that are living and working on Antarctica usually exit by ship or by plane, uh, sort of a mass exodus. So it's a very unique place. And we're about midway through our expedition. Of course, as expeditions tend to go, we're behind schedule. (laughs) Storms or whatever has slowed us down, and we're waiting for the wind to return. And we're on the windiest continent on the globe, and we're in this place, this little pocket where there is absolutely no wind blowing. I mean, you can't even feel a breeze on your cheek. And this is happening day in and day out. And we're watching our mileage go down to almost zero because we're pulling and we're pulling and we're pulling. But you only go a mile per hour when you pull your heavy sleds. We have 260 pound sleds behind each one of us. And we're starting to get really discouraged to the point of almost depression because we can't figure out where this wind is. And of course, we can't bring it back. And we get into our tent one day, and it's a beautiful day out. The sun is out, and it's a typical day where you would normally travel. But we realize if we don't rest, we're not going to be able to capitalize on the wind coming up at any time. So if it came back at 2 a.m., we wanted to be able to wake up and sail and make up those lost miles. So we forced ourselves to do something we had never done on any expeditions, and that is to go in the tent on a beautiful day and rest. But we were restless because it just felt counterintuitive. And we got out our camera, our movie camera, and we put it on the pot. Our tent is like a little hot dog bun. And we spontaneously started to make a little film for our support team back in Minnesota. And as we're doing it, my team member leaves, pulls out her harp, and she starts to play this funny tune. And I start to sort of hand dance, if that makes any sense, because we're in our sleeping bags because it's so cold. And we start to burst out into laughter. And it shifts the whole scene for us. Suddenly, it sort of broke that stiff air of depression. And we bust out laughing and we realize at that moment that laughter, feeling sort of the oxygen in our lungs again, made us realize, look, we can't control the wind. We can't control the weather. We can't control really anything except our attitudes. And so we just have to adjust our attitudes and take what comes. And if it doesn't work out and we don't get across Antarctica because there's no wind, so be it. Mm -hmm. And we've got 3 million children following us, and we feel the pressure of being ebullient and good sports and being successful. And the kids are telling us through text messages, don't worry, things will work out. And besides, you tried. Most people don't try. So don't worry if you fail. And I'm like, I came here to teach them that lesson. (laughs) And they're reinforcing it for us. So on that afternoon, we learned a great deal. We learned to adjust and not control our attitudes and our situation. And we learned that once again, as educators, that typically the students do most of the uh, teaching and educating. That's beautiful. 
the students were absolutely right. And you know what? You two did make it across. So I think the humor and the attitude counted for everything. That's wonderful. And if you were to give one of our writers a writing prompt for a fictional story based upon this interview, would that be it? Or would it be something different or tweaked? Oh, wow. <laughs> Anything you want. <laughs> Anything I want. Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, there's something about perseverance. And I have this vision, too, of the very last day of our journey. And we're arm in arm. And we take a picture before we hop on our little ship to head north to warmer climates. And a lone penguin waddles by. And for me, it was like, you know, you wait. And if you're patient, the things that you wanted to see will come. <laughs> they may not come in great numbers, but there it is. So, you know, it took us 97 days to get across Antarctica and then we see our one penguin. <laughs> because you have to see a penguin if you're going to go to Antarctica. So there's so much that is wrapped up in these trips. And, you know, it's the splendor of where you are. It is such a beautiful world. It's not white and gray. It's filled with every color under the rainbow when the sunlight is hitting through all of the ice crystals on that enormous horizon that you can never catch, you know, and then suddenly there's a squall of a snowstorm, but it's not even over your head. It's over on the horizon somewhere else. And then it's just a magical world in so many ways. I endlessly could talk about it. And then I could flip it on its side and go up into the Arctic, which is an absolutely, totally different environment for so many reasons, other than it's cold and remote, but it's a different kind of landscape. It's a seascape, actually, and different animals live up there. You know, there's polar bears there and no penguins. Yes, indeed. We'll have to invite you back to talk about that in a whole other episode. And before we close out, Tell us where our listeners can find out more about your work, your expeditions, your education. Well, I have two websites. I'm lucky enough to, many years ago, start a foundation called the Ann Bancroft Foundation in Minnesota. And so that's annbancroftfoundation.org. And then there's our expedition website as well. We'd love to have you join us. And that's Eco. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure having you. Well, thank you very much for having me. What a fun, fun, interesting and creative podcast. Thank you. You're listening to The True Fiction Project. As you know, we are all about the stories here. We're part of the Connected Podcasts Network, so do check out some of our other episodes and our fiction app, Chapter by Episode. That was Anne Bancroft, a polar explorer and educator, and I am your host, Renita Hura. And now to the premise of the True Fiction Project, which of course is to create fiction out of nonfiction. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Hall Bag. Written and read by me, Parker James. Christina O'Malley gently rocked back and forth in her lounge chair overlooking the north face of the Eiger Mountain, deep within the Swiss Alps. This foreboding piece of rock and ice stood touching the very heavens at well over 3,000 meters. The next morning, she'd be making a summit attempt to climb what locals call Mordvant, or the murder wall. The more Christina thought about her climbing plans, the more paralyzed she became. A seemingly ancient mountain resort, dressed up in the finest of woodworking and perfectly painted colors, sat at the base. Even as she lounged on the sun deck with a stiff drink in hand, the north face of the Eiger was taunting her, waiting for her to be forced to retreat. Nervous for tomorrow, American? A voice shouted from behind Christina's chair. The wooden deck flexed as the voice had placed a hand on her shoulder. She looked up to see the overtly happy face of her Swiss guide, Hans. He was a pretty average-looking human. Dark hair, light eyes, not overtly strong or skinny. His only defining feature was his largely tangled and wild beard and shoulder-length hair combo. No, 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 I'm not nervous. If anything, you're nervous. I'll beat you to the top, Christina said with a clearly nervous chuckle. You should be nervous, American, Hans responded. Why? Haven't you climbed the Eiger hundreds of times? Not the North Face. I've only climbed the North Face a handful of times. Hans answered with a grim tone. Please, Hans, you're just being humble. I mean, how bad can it be? Up there, on the climb, temperatures will get down to negative 10 or less. The wind will be whipping so fast you'll feel you're going to fly off into the void below. If you listen really closely, you'll hear the tourists down here clink their wine glasses together as we're hammering in more pitons. Christina looked confused for a moment. Pitons? Hans' smile faded on his face. Just don't kill any of us, American. When you're done here, come meet us inside the hotel. We can go over plans and you can meet the rest of the climbing party. Christina's fears and questions were not alleviated from this remark, but it was too late to back down now. Thinking about her brother's ashes tucked into her rucksack gave her enough motivation to peel herself off the lounge chair and venture inside the hotel. American! Christina! Come on over! Hans shouted. Okay, American, meet the rest of the team. We have Mario from Italy, Dom from Austria, and Mary from France. The rest of the evening went on with a few too many glasses of wine and climbing plans. Christina would be in the middle of the group and be hauling most of the heavy gear. It was an unwritten rule in the climbing world. The least experienced member carries the heaviest pack. The party went to sleep shortly after the last sun rays faded from the cloudless sky. Dawn came and Christina hadn't fully processed what she was doing until she was cautiously tapping every piece of rock and ice she put her weight on as she made her snail's pace climb behind Hans. Mario was charging forward as a leader, followed by Hans, Christina, and then Mary and Dom rounding out the team, picking up the various pieces of gear. Hans flashed an okay hand signal before the radio on his rucksack began screaming in German. Like a flash of lightning, he picked it up and listened more intently. 
That was just the weather station. We have an hour before we get sucked into a storm. We still have almost 200 meters of climbing until our bivy. So we need to climb fast, hard, and safe. Hans screamed to the team. Hans, what the hell is a bivy? Shouldn't we just bail? Christina screamed back. Dom rushed to answer her question. American. A bivy is the emergency camp. Were you even listening last night? Or did you have too much wine? Screw you, Dom. Hans, come on, let's just bail. Christina, we can't bail. We have to make it to the bivy. It'll take too long to downclimb. Mary chimed in. Christina felt paralyzed by fear, but was snapped out of it from a pebble hitting her cheek. The party had to move on. Otherwise, they'd be blown off the mountain. The next hour of climbing was the most intense climbing Christina had ever experienced. Loose rock was constantly falling, hitting everyone in the party on the helmets, axes, hands, and backs. The wind was picking up at a feverish pace, throwing everyone around on the route. The temperature was dropping to dangerous levels. The team was less than five meters away from the bivy when Christina was forced to stop. Her hands were fully numb and on fire at the same time. Christina's arms and legs were so full of lactic acid that every muscle was seizing up and begging for her to stop. Mario and Hans topped out first and set to work building an anchor for the rest of the team to come up to the microscopic ledge that would function as camp for the next couple of hours. Right as Christina was about to grab the edge and haul her broken body on top of the ledge, her foothold gave way. Under normal conditions, Christina would have been able to maintain her grip with only her upper body strength. However, with an incoming storm, the stress of climbing in her 15-kilo rucksack, there was nothing she could do but embrace the void and scream loud enough to make avalanches jealous. She whipped past the rest of the team and fell well over 10 meters until her rope and Hans finally caught her. Christina was left dangling over space with only a thin, now freezing rope protecting her from a several hundred meter tumble into death. Pull me up, pull me up, pull me up! Christina screamed up the slope. There was no response, only the howling of the incoming storm. The rope began to move slightly, but Christina was dropped another full meter. Hans, Mario, anyone! Still no one could hear Christina. She started screaming until her voice went hoarse, but nothing happened. Christina started swinging back and forth on the rope in an attempt to grab onto the face. She could see a small cave and was hell-bent on reaching it. Through her swings, her rope was actively sawing against a small edge, cutting deep into the core of the rope. At the last possible second, she managed to just barely grab the cave's ledge as she pulled herself in and a rope fell behind her. The cave was pitch black, but sounded endless. She took a cautious step inside before tripping over something. Quickly fishing out her headlamp from her pack, she flipped it on to discover a body dressed in what looked like World War II clothing. Naturally, she screamed and backed away almost off the ledge. Ugh, don't mind him. Lazy bastard won't get up, a gruff voice mumbled. Christina whipped her head back around to be greeted by a man leaned up against the cave wall, dressed in a similar fashion to the possibly dead body at her feet. Hey, get that light out of my eyes, the man said. Christina was too stunned to speak or move. The man simply grumbled and grabbed an old gas lantern and lit it, seemingly with no matches. Who who are you? Christina asked with a trembling voice. Uh, My name's Carl, and that's Max, the man explained. Carl Menringer and Max Dettelmeyer? Yeah, how'd you know? Christina's stomach dropped through her feet. Oh my god, oh my god, I'm dead. I died. The rope must have snapped. What are you talking about, Frau? Carl asked, confused. You two are dead. At least, you're supposed to be dead. Carl looked around and then looked at himself. 
Do I look dead to you? I mean, I know we've been up here a while, but still. Yes! You and Max froze to death back in 1935. You sure you didn't get hit by a rock, Frau? Maybe this could just be a cold and fatigue-induced hallucination? Pearl shrugged his shoulders and peeked out the cave opening. Still quite the storm. You might be here for a while. Might as well settle in. Christina took one more look behind her at the now raging storm outside of the cave. Frustrated but exhausted, she plopped down against the wall. So what's your name, Frau? Carl asked Christina. Christina, but right now I should be called a dumbass. Why do you say that? <sighs> Let's see. I'm barely a hiker, and all because my stupid brother died and demanded that his ashes be spread up here, I'm possibly dead on the side of a mountain talking to a ghost. Christina cried out. Hmm. Aren't we all kind of stupid? Carl asked. Huh? There's nothing at the top of this mountain. Only thin air and snow. But yet your brother wanted to be left up here. Carl explained. It's, it's different. We want to let his spirit rest there. We can look at beautiful views for the rest of time. Carl looked disappointed at her response. Though so you didn't do any of this for you. Christine wanted to feel angry, but couldn't. I guess not. But yet here I am. Carl didn't say anything, but looked distantly at Christina. Can I ask you a question? Christina asked. Sure. Carl answered. Why didn't you and Max try to climb this? To your point, there's nothing at the top of this tower but death, rock, and ice. Carl thought for a moment before responding. Honestly, just to see if we could. Mountain was here and the journey seemed like a fun challenge. You cannot be serious. You put your life and your family's sanity at total risk for nothing? Just to say that you can climb something that no one has climbed before? Carl smiled a cool smile at Christina. You're clearly not a climber. But to answer your question, it's not about anybody else. This is a spiritual journey for yourself. Of course, there's no point in climbing any mountain. However, it's about pushing yourself to the limit to understand some greater truth about your life and the fleeting nature of the human experience. Wow. You, uh, you practice that in a mirror? Kind of a douchebag explanation. Douchebag? I'm not sure I understand this English word. Doesn't matter. I guess there's nothing left to do now but freeze to death, Christina said with her tears freezing on her cheek. Here at the True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So, if you have a great story or know somebody who does... Or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at renita.com forward slash contact. Thank you for listening to The True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park 